Welcome to the broadcast. This is Michael Easley, and we're glad to have our friend Elizabeth Urbanowitz back on the podcast. Good morning, good afternoon, wherever you are. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for having me on, Dr. Easley. It's great to be back with you. We're excited. So for those that don't know about Elizabeth, as always, we have information in the show notes. But just because I'm an education academic wonk, I got to tell you, she's got three degrees. So she's three degrees above zero, and that always <laughs> impresses me. She did her BS at Gordon College. She did a master's of education from Northern Illinois University. And then, not satisfied, she went on for another MA in apologetics at Biola. So she is very well educated. And most importantly, she's using that to reach children, young minds that need to understand a Christian worldview. Elizabeth, let me have you tell in your words kind of your backstory and how you started the foundation and what this is about before we jump into the book. Yeah, well, I love getting to share just a small glimpse into the backstory because when I do, it's just so obvious that this is all about what the Lord has been doing. I just have the privilege of being part of it. So I started off my professional career as an elementary educator at a Christian school just outside of Chicago, and it was a great Christian school. The students came from wonderful Christian homes. I'm passionate about God and His Word and education, so they were getting a biblically-based education all day long. Most of them were involved in a local church, but they were still rapidly absorbing ideas from the culture without any question. And several years into my teaching, I just noticed, okay, you know, these students that God has placed in my care really in one year of their lives, just because of the prevalence of technology, which is not always a bad thing. You know, you and I are recording this podcast because of the gift of technology, but because of its prevalence in one year of their lives, they were going to be faced with more competing ideas than most humans throughout history have been faced with in their entire lives. And I thought, okay, you know what? I'm going to need to train them with some skills that we haven't necessarily had to train kids with in the past, you know, to make sure that every time they hear a message, you know, whether it's, you know, on the playground or at school or at church, or whether it's a meme, a TikTok video, you know, a Disney plus series that they're pausing to ask themselves, okay, what did I just hear? What was the claim? Is this true? or is it not true? And how do I know? So that just set me out on a journey of first, I just started looking for materials and I was like, okay, where's, you know, the curriculum that does this. And then I was like, oh, there is nothing for third graders, you know, that does this. So that sent me on a journey of just starting to create my own resources. People were really thrilled with the results and wanted me to publish them. And I was like, I am a third grade teacher. I am not a Christian (laughs) publishing house, like time out. So that's what eventually led me back to Biola to get the master's in apologetics. Cause I thought, you know, if I am going to create resources for others, I need to make sure that I really have a firm grounding in both theology and philosophy to make sure that the materials I am creating are not only academically sound, um, you know, from an instructional design perspective, but they're also theologically and philosophically grounded. And so that in 2018, I stepped back from teaching in the classroom and started Foundation Worldview. So we're a ministry that's designed to equip Christian adults with the skills and tools and resources that they need to get the kids in their care to carefully evaluate every idea they encounter and understand the truth of the biblical worldview. Now, is this a 501c3 organization as well? We're actually an LLC, so we're fully funded on our own. That was just always the mission and vision that I thought, you know, I can chase down donors or I can chase down customers. And if I can spend all my energy on customers, that means we actually get to reach the kids (laughs) sooner. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, that's a wise choice. Let's also talk a little bit about a good friend of ours. You had a little, quite a lot of contribution to Christopher Yuan's Holy Sexuality curriculum that he worked for, was it to high school originally? And I think now they're looking at middle school. Is that correct? correct? Yes. 
Yep. So I was really grateful to be able to partner on that project and just take my area of instructional design expertise and Dr. Yuan's area of expertise, you know, in theology specifically as it regards to God's good design for sexuality and combine those two things to come up with some resources to help parents really educate their kids biblically. Now, we want to talk about your newest book in your foundation, but also let folks know what you've done so far, because one of the things I've done the last five years intentionally when I was still pastoring was I was pretty out on a limb telling parents, you really need to homeschool or tutorial. I know there are good Christian schools. I know there's even good public schools, but it's no longer safe. The indoctrination levels, the reduction of education, teaching to score, teaching to testing, the DEI initiatives. Education has become sort of a waste can of philosophical ideas, and you're putting your most precious person in that room who believes the adult up front, whatever they say. And this is no longer, you know, recreational. This is incredible. So I've been, let's say, a not very popular with some folks saying, you need to get your kids out of the school system, tutorial or homeschool. And you've built on that with your materials. Yes, that is correct. So for all of our curriculums, we have three different licenses available for all of them. We have family licenses, Christian school licenses, and church licenses. But we are primarily trying to service the Christian family because biblically parents are the primary disciple makers of their children. And even with our church licenses, what we've really been pushing is that rather than churches implementing our materials in their Sunday school or their children's ministry time, that they buy bulk family licenses and lead a family discipleship initiative so that this disciple is taking place in the home. The different families at the church are just coming together, linking arms as a local church and discipling their kids well in this way. A decade ago, homeschooling got a pretty bad rap for the lack of socialization, the lack of recess, of academic endeavors, team sports. You're a teacher. How do you speak to that? Yeah. I mean, I think with any type of schooling, there's always going to be things you have to look out for. You know, we have to be intentional in all areas. And yes, homeschooling families, you know, especially if the parents are both incredibly introverted, they need to make sure that they're involved in the body of Christ as we all are called to be, you know, so that's something that we do need to watch out for. You know, I've been to homeschooling conventions and I've, you know, run into families where their kids won't make eye contact with anyone. And I'm like, "Mm, that's probably not the best thing, but is that the vast majority No, (laughs) you know, is that something that, you know, needs to be on a homeschool parent's mind? Yes. But I would say that that is a very minor fear. And when you compare the fear of, I might need to work a little bit extra on developing some social skills with my children versus my child might actually be indoctrinated to believe that they can change their gender. What are you going to choose? You know, I think it's just a no brainer there. And so I think as with anything, I think homeschooling is a great idea and it just has to be done intentionally. And, you know, like God has called parents to be the primary disciple makers of their children. And so I think homeschooling is a great way to do that. One other thing I've really been thankful for post COVID is people have started to think a little bit more creatively about education Mm. and a lot of university model schools have started to pop up, which that's where, you know, sometimes parents might feel like, oh, you know, like, I don't know if I have the skills to completely educate my child, which I would say, yes, you do. You know, you just might need to hone in on some of them, but these university model schools, that's where two to three days a week, the children go to school and they're involved in a classroom. And then the other two to three days a week, the parents are instructing the children in that same curriculum at home. So that takes a little bit of pressure off the parents. You know, they don't Mm -hmm. have to come up with the curriculum on their own, but they know they're working with like-minded families. And, you know, like if a classroom environment is a big deal for a parent, you know, they're still getting that, you know, two to three days a week under the instruction of a Christian educator. (laughs) Well, and that was a tutorial. We're in Middle Tennessee, and there are lots of tutorials, even some designed for 
let's say, the overachieving student and those designed for kids that might have some learning challenges. And uh, we've been very impressed. And again, it was, I want to say two, maybe three days a week, and it was like nine to one. So it wasn't this all-day affair. The other thing I would add is, you know, team sports and clubs are a lot more common than when I was young, probably when you were in elementary school, because, well, if your kid's into soccer, you can find probably a club or a team soccer, maybe even through the tutorial systems. So it's not like a either or as it once was. And even with the early homeschool curriculums, they were behind a computer screen all day and, you know, clicking and writing and mom was hovering around and arguments in the home. And it's gotten so much easier with resources that you're doing and others are doing. And just, again, encourage parents who might watch this or grandparents who have a vested interest in our grandkids to say, look, you really need to consider this. I'll help you. We'll come alongside you. So I I just want, you know, thank you so much for your efforts. Let's talk about your newest book, What is Truth? (laughs) A delightful book, beautifully illustrated and laid out. First, before we talk about content, tell me about Word Count and children's books, because this is a very robust scientific process of word count and pages for age-appropriate kids. Yes. So can I give you the exact word count in the book? I cannot. I do not know what that is, but I can walk no, no, you through like, the process. No, I didn't mean that so much. No, I didn't mean that <laughs> yeah. so much, but no, uh, per page, oh, because yeah. you can't have a lot of copy and text on a page for three to six. Yes. And then seven to nine, and then it falls off at 13 because children really don't like to read. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, that's something, you know, at Foundation Worldview, we actually have a book club where once a month we recommend three titles, one for adults, one for eight to 12 year olds, one for four to seven year olds. And for the two kid titles, we give worldview questions. And it's so hard for me to find books that I feel like I can actually recommend for that four to seven range wow. that fall in. You know, a lot of times we're looking for books that are specifically written from a Christian worldview, not because, you know, non-Christian books aren't helpful, you know, to engage kids, but they're already getting plenty of those at the library. So we're trying to point parents to like, hey, here's some quality Christian literature. And it's so hard to find books that think about the child's development that don't have too many words per page. Like you said, like the way that I find our books is, you know, I'll buy different books online or publishing houses will send them to me. And then I bring them to my small group on Wednesday and I'll read them one at a time to the kids. I won't read more than two, but I will open up a book. And if all of the children are on the sofa with me, by the time I close the pages, I will recommend that book. (laughs) If they're not all there, I'm like, this has not held their attention. (laughs) And sometimes there's just too many words or there's phrases that you know, we can give little kids big vocabulary words, but they have to be defined right away. And so yep. oftentimes, you know, big yep. words are used or there's pages where there's even like a small illustration in so many words. And it's like, oh, you've just lost the kid it's there. Yeah. So we have to be really intentional when we're thinking about what type of literature are we exposing our kids to? Because as Christians, we're people of the book. Like God has revealed himself to us through his written word. And we want to develop in our children a love for the written word and a love for seeking God through that. And part of the way that we do that is by surrounding them with quality literature. So yes, we have to be really intentional at thinking, you know, for little kids, for like three to seven year olds, if we're talking about a picture book, there shouldn't really be more than three sentences on the page, you know, because then it's time to turn the page and look at a new picture. (laughs) (laughs) My granddaughter, she's a lot better now, but when she was really young, she would turn the page for you and then pitch the book. (laughs) Yep. Kids do that all the time. I'm done with that one. Yeah, I'm done with that one. It reminds me when I first started graduate school at Dallas, Cindy and I had been married a year. We moved to Dallas. We got involved with the church and they corralled us to work with children's ministry. I was terrified (laughs) of kids. And they had a puppet ministry and story time. 
And I'll never forget this woman handed me the story. Read the story. And I read the story. And the kids were just pell-mell all over the room, climbing the walls. And after the class was over, her name was Kay. She says, can I talk to you for a minute? I said, sure. And we're sitting in these little (laughs) elementary chairs, you know, that are six inches off the ground. And she says, let me show you how you read that book. And she read it like an adult reads it, you know. Sam and Jill went over to the, and she goes, no, you have to read Sam and Jill (laughs) went, you know, and I'm like, this was so out of my comfort zone. And, and she said, I want you to go and practice the story for next week in front of a mirror. And, you know, that was a great education Mm -hmm. because even if the book's great, they may not be on the couch with you if you're not engaged and animate. And that goes back to your introvert comment. This isn't hard to learn. And you have to get over. Kids don't care if you're silly. Right. They don't care if you're overly (laughs) expressed. Yeah, they do. And they're not judgmental at all. And so I think adults, those are things we can learn. They're very easy skills. But back to the point of pedagogy, how we're teaching is what's lost in all school forms. Even in some Christian schools I've been around with, it's so erudite and academic and rigorous and stressful. And the kids, you see it on their faces. And these huge backpacks on kids. And I'm like, this is not education anymore. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But anyway, back to what you're doing. So let's talk about the newest book, What is Truth? And the word count is very short. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, an adult can read this book in about four minutes. (laughs) Reading it out loud will take you a little longer. Why is it important? You know, Christopher, speaking of you on, Christopher and I talked about truth many times in recent interviews because he said, Michael, it's no longer about identity or preference. It's about what's true. And we've got to start with what is true. So I was delighted to see this. Yes. Yeah. And that's really the foundation, you know, because we can have our kids, you know, memorize John 14, six, which says, you know, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. But if they have bought into the cultural lie, which they so easily will, and we so easily do too, because we're just swimming in this postmodern narrative that, you know, truth changes from person to person to person. What they'll actually hear is, you know, Jesus is the way for some people. He's the truth for some people. He's the life for some people. And now our cultural mantra is that the best guide to reality, the most true guide to reality is your inner subjective emotional world. Now, my friends at the Mama Bear Apologetics, in their first book, they had a phrase that I just love. They said, emotions are a great check engine light, but a terrible GPS, which is so true. You know, emotions, it's like, okay, why am I feeling this strongly? Why am I feeling this way? Let me think about that. But being led by those emotions or viewing those emotions as an objective reality is so dangerous because on this side of Genesis Mm. 3, that's just not true. And so at the youngest of ages, what we want to do is we want to help little ones think, okay, is this true? Or is this not true? Because what we're doing by, in this book, you know, we play a game where we have, you know, the characters present some sentences that are true and some that are not true. And the kids have to open their arms and say true if it's true. And they cross their arms like an X and say not true if it's not true. But by playing this game, what we're doing is we're actually creating a new paradigm for them so that they're actually having these mental boxes, you know, for is this true? Is this not true? And when we consistently play a game like this with kids, they enjoy it, but then they also implement it in real life. Like I've had friends who, you know, they've taken their kids through this game that we play in Foundation Worldview and our basic curriculums. And they say their kids love to play it in the car, you know, instead of the I'm thinking of an animal game, you know, they like to play the true or not true game. But then in conversations, they'll notice that their kid will be like, oh, but that's not true. 
mommy, that's not true. And the parents like, exactly. That's what I wanted you to get. (laughs) You know, and so that's what we want them to get. And then actually the next step after that, which is not included in this book, but Lord willing in the spring, we're releasing our second picture book, which adds this step in. We want to then introduce the category of feelings, you know, inner subjective feelings. And to know that, you know, we're created in God's image. Having emotions can be a good thing, but sometimes feelings can trick us. So in that second book, what we introduce is the difference between something that's true and it's like objectively true for everyone versus a feeling that we subjectively have, but people are going to feel different about that. And these are the basic categories we want to give kids just so they have this mental paradigm so that anytime they hear something, they're asking, okay, is that true? Is that not true? Or is that a feeling? And, you know, I even saw this just from someone who wrote into our ministry that we kind of think that this foundation of truth and truth as opposed to subjective feelings, is kind of like, if you think about the movie, The Karate Kid, you know, when Daniel was learning wax on, wax off, and he thought all he was doing was learning how to wax the car and paint the fence, and he was frustrated. But then he realized that was the basics of karate, that this true, not true, and feelings is really the basics of preparing our kids to navigate culture that um, a mom wrote into our ministry. And she said, she picked her son up from school one day, he was attending a public school and she asked him how his day was. And he was like, mom, it was really weird. And she said, what was really weird about it? And he said, well, you know, my teacher was absent and we had a substitute. He was like, and the substitute was a man, but he was wearing a dress and he had us call him Mrs. So-and-so. And, you know, the mom is like internally freaking out, you know, cause her son's like six years old. She hasn't prepared him for this. And she, you know, externally said she remained calm. She's like, well, what did you think about that buddy? And he's like, mommy, it was so sad. She's like, well, why was it mm. sad? And he said, because the truth is that God made him a boy and his body shows the truth that he's a boy. Instead, he was believing his feelings over the truth. You know, the mom said she burst into tears then, you know, but this is like (laughs) this foundation that our kids need in order to be able to cut through all of just the untruth, the lies, the deception that's taking place in our culture right now. I had lunch with a good friend yesterday. And he was telling me his eight-year-old daughter had some friends in the neighborhood over that they've been playing with for a couple of years now. And a little girl two doors down came over and she was telling his daughter that she's in love with a girl and that she's going to be a lesbian. Eight years old. Goodness gracious. And (laughs) as a parent, you know, how do you not overreact to that? And the eight-year-old child is processing, what does this even mean? I mean, this is Middle Tennessee. This is a pretty conservative area. So you wonder, you know, outside the pale. And then, you know, this is an educator better than me. They get to a point where they don't talk to the parent about what they're exposed to in school. How was your day? Fine. What did you learn? Oh, you know, it's some innocuous answer. Drop the backpack, go to their room, and then maybe do some homework before or after dinner and wash and repeat. And again, I think the value of homeschooling, and again, tutorials, not to overstate, they're more robust and I love the fact that you're adding curriculum for the adult, too. I've heard of churches that have an adult curriculum, then a child's curriculum. It's the same in their Sunday school curriculum so that what the kid is learning, the adult's reading, if they will. So when they get in the car to go home, it's like, what did you learn in Sunday school today? Well, matter of fact, <laughs> we read the same thing as an adult level. So there's that interaction with how the child is processing information and how the parent is reinforcing and asking those questions without freaking out. That's mm-hmm. <laughs> that's the key for every parent. What? <laughs> are you kidding me? <laughs> Overacting parents don't help. So as you go forward in this, are you seeing a trend? Is that a fair word that more and more parents are kind of, 
I hate the word waking up, but they're moving towards, okay, we need to be serious about education, discipleship in the home and do this. Yeah, that is actually something that really encourages me and excites me, especially just seeing how many parents of younger children are seeing like, okay, we can't just ride the cultural wave. We can't just say like, oh, our parents did this and we turned out fine. Like we actually have to be intentional about discipleship. So I am encouraged in the way that parents are waking up to this. I'm also encouraged by the way that some churches are waking up to this as well in making family discipleship a priority because in all honesty, not that there's never a place for, you know, the education of children or for youth to get together. You know, there can be a time and a place sure. for that, but I genuinely believe that the way we are consistently breaking people up into ages and stages in the local church is really a Trojan horse because where does that stem back to? That stems back to public education in the U.S., which started from the mid-1800s to the early 1900s. And when you really dive down into some of the primary sources of those founding fathers of education, particularly Horace Mann and John Dewey, you see that their goal was really to create a humanist society. And how do you create a humanist society? Well, you break down the family structure because you need an alternate worldview to be given to the children. And what's the easiest way to do that? You break siblings up, you know, because you hold on much more tightly to your worldview. If you have a sibling that's across the classroom from you, you know, so the one room schoolhouse, you know, was replaced by grade levels. And there can be some benefit, you know, to having all six-year-olds, you know, that you're teaching them all the same thing. But that wasn't really the main purpose when you actually dive down into some of those readings. It was really to break down the worldview. And it's like, why have we adopted this model into the church? It's like, this is a model that was designed to break down the family unit, which is God's basic building block for society. And so I'm excited that some churches are really waking up to that and are including more of you know entire families. Everyone in the corporate worship service are really trying to encourage and equip parents to be the primary disciple makers of their children. So I'm really grateful for these things that I'm seeing. <laughs> okay, let's get a little specific. What's a single parent to do? Because, you know, we've got a broken world mm -hmm. and you got single parents, usually the mom that's got two, maybe three children at home. She's working full time. She's trying to just basically survive. And now we're going to load her up with, you need to do a discipleship program with your kid and go through these curriculums. Mm -hmm. Yes. And we don't want to, you know, burden people any further. And that's where I need right. to think like, okay, biblically, what should this person do? Biblically, what should we as the church do? You know, so if this was the early church, it would have been very different, you know, in the early church, there wouldn't have been so much divorce. You know, if a woman was single, you know, she wouldn't have been able to really provide for her family on her own. However, in the early church, the church would have come alongside her. The elders, you know, they wouldn't have been her husband, but they would have taken over that role of, you know, really seeking to protect and provide for her. And the church community would have come around her. And so I would say that's really what we are called to do as the local church. You know, we're called to care biblically for orphans and widows, you know, and mm -hmm. I, I would think Paul does give some qualifications of who's genuinely a widow, you know, and who's not. But I think, you know, in some cases, sure. single moms. There's a principle there, yeah, yeah, caring would, for the flock. Yes, yeah. mm -hmm. would fit into that. And so that's where, you know, if a single parent is listening or watching this podcast, I would really encourage you, if you're not already involved in a local church that actually lives as the body of Christ on a daily basis to make sure that you get plugged in. And I know those kind of churches are few and far between and they're harder to find, yes. but they are out there. And like, I see this in my own church, you know, there was a case where, you know, a mom really wanted to homeschool her kids and she's not a single mom, but just financially, it wasn't going to work out that she and her husband both needed to work. So another woman in our church who had kids the same age was like, I'm homeschooling my kids 
you can drop your kids off at my house and I'll yep. homeschool them. And so just to really even think creatively, you know, where I saw, you know, another family in my church, they really wanted to send their kids to a Christian school, but that just financially was not feasible. So other people in the church came alongside them and were like, hey, we don't have any children right now. We can provide for this lack of finances mm-hmm. that you have. So that's what I would really encourage for the single parent or for anybody who's, you know, if somebody's listening, who's in an unequally yoked marriage, you know, where they're married to an unbeliever or, you know, just difficult situations like that to not buy into the individualistic American mindset of it's just me and Jesus and we'll see how it turns out. Because yes, God does save us individually unto himself, but he saves us unto his body. And that's where the body of Christ really plays an important role. It's tragic, but your comment about churches that are solid being few and far between, if you'd have told me when I started out, you know, 40 some years ago, the state of the church today, I could not have imagined the shift in philosophy of ministry. You're right about, you know, the humanistic system of breaking everybody up. There's also a tension with, you know, it's, it's kind of both and, is it not? Because you do need, let's just call it the one schoolroom idea of a church with families, but you also need specialized attention sometimes. And I'm thinking of that awkward age for kids when they go through pre-adolescence. It's very challenging. And it's good to be around, let's say, a subject matter expert who really understands those years, as well as a person. And I think coaches, coaches are phenomenal at certain chapters of your life, especially a good Christian coach, whether it's an individual sport like tennis or a team sport like basketball or volleyball, the camaraderie, the skill set that goes on there. And you could argue essentially a worldview. You know, that we're a team, even though this person is really good and we always want him or her to take the shot, it takes a team to get the ball to him or her. Just speak to that a little bit because I don't want folks to go away going it's wrong if you do it that way, but there seems to be a need for both. Is that fair or pushback? Yeah. So I think I agree and I don't agree. So I do agree that those kind of things can be very beneficial, you know, like the camaraderie on a team where you're developing skills in sports, you know, or music or arts, you know, where you're working towards a common goal. We, all of us as humans, you know, can find value in that and that can be really enriching for our lives. So I think that that can be very, very helpful. And I think, you know, sometimes youth groups at church can be like that and it can be helpful. I think, however, a lot of times the model is not necessarily helpful in that we're getting all people of the same age together. And it's just kind of like all navel gazing. And it's like, yeah, we know, you know, like you kind of don't want to be here, but like, we'll try to make it really, really fun for you. And there's nothing wrong with like trying to have a fun activity, you know, do a rock climbing, you know, or, you know, something like that, that can be good. But I think we just need to shift the focus a little bit that if we are going to really focus on discipleship, it shouldn't just be like, okay, this is going to be on the youth pastor and a few like real young adults who the kids would like. I mean, there's nothing wrong with having a youth pastor or having some of those young adults there, but really looking at the church as a whole kind of discipling kids. Now I go to a really unique church and that we don't have any youth programming, you know, over the summer, once a week, you know, a bunch of adults will get together and we'll take the youth somewhere, you know, we'll take them rock climbing or canoeing or camping or something like that. But throughout the year, we just have discipleship groups. So once a kid in our church turns 13, they're still primarily discipled by their parents, but they join in discipleship group with one or two adults. So right now in my discipleship group, I have a 17 year old girl, you know, we've been in discipleship group for two years together 
and, you know, we study a book of the Bible. We'll have dinner together one night a week, but we just do like daily life together. You know, like I hate shopping. Like I'd like rather get my teeth cleaned (laughs) at the dentist. So every time I need to go shopping, Brittany, the girl in discipling, she loves shopping. So I'm texting her. I'm like, hey, Brittany, I need new sneakers. Can you meet me at the mall, you know, on Saturday? (laughs) You know, or Uh, like if, you know, if she and her boyfriend, you know, just had a fight or something, I'll be like, hey, why don't you guys come over for dinner tomorrow? You know, we can like talk through things like that. So I'm not saying that's the only model. I'm just saying, I think we need to be careful sometimes that we're not just following the model of the world of like, oh, we're just going to like meet kids where they are and have kind of low expectations and all focus on fun. We just need to make sure that we're really thinking about how is discipleship done best in this context. Well, no argument there, but I'm thinking of like a symphony or Mm -hmm. a band or again, a team. And again, they're not perfect, but there's something about that working together with a small unit of people to a goal. I mean, we've been around musical instruments and our daughters were both performers and musical theater and vocalist and piano and violin and you know the gambit. And when you go to that recital and you've heard the cacophony <laughs> leading up to the recital, you know, it's a pretty beautiful thing. You know, yeah. it's like, wow, you know, I couldn't do that. So, and there's something about an accomplishment there too, because it's individual, but it's also as a group. And even though they're still kids when they play, it's like, wow, they did a lot. So I don't want parents to hear, only keep your kid at home, only do discipleship and fill in the blank. And, you know, you can't watch TV or have a tablet (laughs) because that's kind of what we associate Mm. with homeschooling. And if you talk about parents discipling their kids and, you know, we can think back on organizations, I won't name names in the past that were so strict that those kids rebelled from those systems. And you're talking about a good biblical foundation, but also in a creative way that's fun. You know, the materials are fun. They're engaging. Even the games, you know, kids love games. We have a lot of fun with Hannah's three kids inventing games. And, you know, they're on edge of the seat when you're playing a game with them. And so education doesn't have to be fill in the blank, memorize the form, regurgitate the content. And that's what you're doing with your Foundation Worldview books. So what's next? So I'm envisioning you've got a long game here of curriculum. So tell us about what's Elizabeth's plan for the next five, seven, 10 years. Yeah. So we'll see if this is the Lord's plan. You know, we've got to hold things loosely, (laughs) but we do have a plan at Foundation Worldview right now. We have different tracks for our curriculum. They're for different ages. So we have curriculums for ages four plus, eight plus and 12 plus. And right now our biblical thinking track is filled out. We have our biblical worldview for four plus, our comparative worldview for eight plus and our careful thinking for 12 plus. Then we have a biblical literacy track where we have our attributes of God for four plus, our studying the Bible for eight plus, and we're still waiting. We're going to be doing a systematic theology one, but that's going to be a few years down the road. And the new track that we're starting, it won't be our final track, but the new track we're starting and we're going to Lord willing fill out over the next three to four years is we're going to call our biblical sexuality track. So the curriculum that we're Lord willing filming in January of 2024 is called God's Good Design, where we spend eight whole lessons looking on just what is design? How do we tell when something is designed? You know, what do we do when something is designed? Then we take 11 lessons looking at God's good design for us individually as his image bearers made male or female body and soul. How does sin corrupt that good design and what is God's solution for that? And then God's good design for relationships. So what are the different types of love that God has created for different relationships, you know, for friendships, for marriages, for families. And then, you know, how do we see that good design? Then where do we see corruptions of that? And then what is God's ultimate end game plan for his good design for relationships? So that's our first one. Lord willing, the next two will come out within the next three to four years. 
So, and then eventually we're going to get to a biblical apologetics track where we'll have three more curriculums for that. Again, all Lord willing, that's our goal at Foundation Worldview. So with the materials you're producing, obviously that's not a full schedule of English and, you know, literature and math and science. So I'm just thinking the homeschool parent who's probably using a curriculum of some kind from a publisher that's paint by numbers, and it could be great. So how do they take what you're developing and plug it in or add to it? Because you are discipling. But I'm thinking, okay, if I'm a parent already strapped onto a program, how do I take Foundation Worldview and bring it into what I'm doing? Yeah, great question. So I'd say there's two main answers to that question. The first thing is we describe it as we say, we try not to make you fit into our box. And so we try to be flexible so we can fit into yours. So all of our curriculums, are between 25 and 30 lessons long. And the curriculums for little kids, each lesson is a half hour. For older kids, it's either 45 minutes or an hour. So that means you're getting anywhere from a half hour to an hour long lesson, either 25 weeks or 30 weeks, one lesson a week. So we're like, just do it one One a week. week. So you add a half hour somewhere or an hour into your schedule. So that's really the goal is that we are supplemental. We're not taking over your math or your history or your literature curriculum. Then the second thing that we tell people to think of is we say, think about when you're teaching your child to read. The goal of teaching them to read is that they will become readers and then can implement that in all of the other subject areas. And so how do you teach a child how to read? Well, what you could do is you could show them a whole bunch of sight words and just have them memorize word after word after word after word. And you know, for some weird words, you just gotta do that. (laughs) You know, but most words, that's not how you learn. What we do is we teach our children 26 letters and the corresponding sounds. Then we have them practice putting those letters and sounds together in different orders. And then eventually they can read, they can decode any word that comes their way, because we have given them these transferable skills that can be implemented in any and every subject area. That's what we're doing at Foundation Worldview. We're not like, memorize this, do this, memorize that, regurgitate this. We're like, hey, these are some basic skills that you need to implement in every area of your life. And it's going to come up in math. It's going to come up in history. It's going to come up in literature. It's going to come up in language arts. And so we're trying to lay that foundation of these transferable skills that your kids will take with them in any and every situation that they encounter. So don't think of us as like another box you got to check. Think of us as like, these are the foundational skills, the transferable skills that your kids can implement in any and every circumstance. And we always say by the time kids are done with one of our curriculums, They should not need us at Foundation Worldview for Mm. that same concept again. It's a terrible business model, but a really good discipleship one. Because we're not like, (laughs) hey, come back to us for like part five and part 16 and this. We're like, hey, once your kid knows this material at this age level, they're prepared for the situations they're going to (laughs) encounter. See, I'm going to disrupt you there and say, I'm going to pray that God gives you a lot more areas to investigate. And after <laughs> apologetics, you need one on evangelism, you need one on the uh, personal disciplines of the faith. You know? All those things. <laughs> <laughs> think big, think big. <laughs> You're just swimming to 24 and 25, right? <laughs> Well, we've been chatting with Elizabeth Urbanowitz. As always, the information is in the show notes. You need to check out Foundation Worldview, and the link will be down there. You can learn more about Elizabeth. I really encourage you, your parents, grandparents, take a look at this. Buy a couple of tools and look at them yourself and pray that God will open some doors for you and some other parents to talk through this. Maybe you're in a situation where you can't envision how you would do it. Get together and pray with a group of parents and say, creatively, maybe our church doesn't do this. Maybe the homeschool setup doesn't work, but you're the parent 
and you can find an hour a week. Uh, it's not that difficult, and Elizabeth has done the hard work for you. So, as always, Elizabeth, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, and can't wait for the next book drop and to get you back. Well, thanks so much for having me on today, Dr. Easley. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonamorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.